Oh my State police helicopter drops it. There is the explosion. I hate Asians. Prosecutors saying the victims were targeted because they were gay or transgender. I didn't want to come and I don't want to be here. Every single last one of you better be fucking registered to vote. This uniform doesn't make him a robot. Just like your uniform, your skin color doesn't make you a criminal. We don't do this the correct way. Hey guys, welcome to Diversity on Fire. My name is Heather. I'm coming from New Hampshire. My name's Nina. I'm from the Midwest in Iowa. My name's Ashley. I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina. Today's guest grew up in a rough neighborhood in Grand Rapids, Michigan, before being recruited to Cornell University in Iowa. He started his career as a juvenile probation officer. Then he moved on to a 17-plus year career in law enforcement, where he served in many roles, including arson investigations, drug enforcement, and an anti-terrorism FBI task force. He currently serves as the Director of Security at Mercy Medical Center in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where he teaches de-escalation classes and is noted for his quote, don't let the badge enter the room before you do. It is our pleasure to welcome Claude Howard Jr. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Claude, we're so excited to talk to you today. I think everyone in the room can probably agree that being a police officer in America is probably one of the most complicated things anyone has experienced in a very long time. Um, We want to hear from you what your experience has been like up to this point so we can all do the work to help make things easier moving forward. So we want to start from the top. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to kind of go into essentially basic training of being a police officer? What What is coming into the police force look like for you or did it look like for you? Sure. Well, it was, you know, like you would expect a lot of physical work, a lot of Defensive tactics, a lot of shooting, um, a lot of focus on um, self-defense and the defense of others. I'd, I'd say um, probably 80% or more of the of the education in law enforcement academy in Iowa was definitely kind of down that path. And so for me, I, it, I honestly, I tell people that it was one of the easier things that I had done in my life getting through the academy. Um, I didn't find it overly difficult, but uh, you know, it prepared me, so to speak, for the physical aspect as much as anything else. When I got to the police department where I was working, um, that's really where I kind of learned how to navigate law enforcement in the way that they taught me just on the street during training. And so I I really feel like everything I kind of learned about being a police officer happened from the people that were doing the job at the department where I was working. Okay. So when you say the people people on the job in the department where you were working, more so than the people who were training you? Well, there's two, there's both, both sides of training. Okay. So the initial academy is the, the education on Iowa law, the education on the, again, you're basically trying to pass your physical exams, pass your shooting tests, making sure that you can physically do the job. And, and there's a, an aspect of, of learning about OWIs, about domestic abuse, about some of the major things that you'll be involved in in law enforcement, you know, and state laws, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so really what's different mm-hmm. is, is that there are some city ordinances that you have to learn in the actual department that you're working for. Um, in different areas of the state, county attorney's offices handle law enforcement in a different way, you know, so there's a lot of things to learn there too. So most of it was on the job. So I'd say the, the three months I was in the academy prepared me physically to do the job the additional three months of the FTO program, four months of the FTO program, then provided me the information that I needed to do my job there and at that department. 
And the whole training program was about seven months then? Uh, yeah, seven, eight months when it's all said okay. and done. So, um, and then probationary period basically for for a year. So um, the, the, whole, the whole system really to, to be prepared and be a, a fully vetted officer is, is about a year long. About a year. Okay. About how many percentage of your classmates did not make it? Oh, gosh. I'm trying to think of how many I had in the class, but I'd say we only lost three, maybe four. And, and I, I'm guessing we probably had 30 or so in the class. Okay, okay. So about 90%. Oh, sure. Made it. Yeah. So I want to take it back real quick. You you mentioned as part of the training, one of the big things that was focused on was protection of yourself, but you kind of emphasize protection of others. And I'd like to ask you a little bit about that because right now what we see, and with I'm asking this question with the complete understanding that we are talking about media here, <laughs> but what a lot of people see from the media is an uber defensiveness of self and a little bit less of a defensiveness for others. And I think that's causing a big problem. Now, I'm not suggesting that that is across the board what's happening, but that is what is being shown. And it is a sticking point right now. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, really, you know, I think what people need to understand, and it's difficult to understand it if, you're, if you've not been in law enforcement or are not a law enforcement officer, is that because of the responsibility of the job, which is to carry a firearm to um, have some what they call qualified immunity, but I mean some authority to deal with people in whatever way is necessary to make sure that you are protecting the public and protecting yourselves, depending on the encounter, um, that there's a, a large emphasis on on those types of tactics. My, I think where we're we're starting to struggle and we have probably for a lot of years in training is that we have worked so hard to make sure that we can shoot well, that we can defend well, that we can use all of the different tools that we have. I mean, remember that officers, many officers around the country probably carry a um, firearm, a handgun. They carry a taser. They carry potentially pepper spray. They carry an asp, a, a steel baton, um, and then have their vest and, uh, you know, maybe an assault rifle in the vehicle, a shotgun. There's all these things that we carry all day long on our shift that we have to be responsible for and uh, make sure that we engage with properly uh, out on the street, that we spend a ton of time doing that type of training, training to uh, shoot, no shoot scenarios, training um, how to engage people um, on felony stops and um, and, and all of these other types of uh, incidents that we may get into. I think what's lacking then is that we have not focused enough on how do we approach a vehicle on a traffic, traffic stop on a, in a respectful way? How do we engage people that are in a large group that, you know, are maybe doing nothing wrong and walk up and just talk to people? I think we've, what we've forgotten to do is remember how to just be respectful to the general public. And I have found in my career, and I, I'll, you know, I can tell you just uh, at the beginning of my career, um, watching other officers and engaging in the community, I think my perspective was a little bit more unique in the small town where I, where I considered a small town about, at the time, maybe 35,000 people. I was the only one that looked like me uh, on the department. Mm -hmm. From how I grew up, my engagement with law enforcement, the way I felt about police officers before I actually became a police officer helped me to engage the public in a little different way. Um, I remember officers not being overly nice, uh, being disrespectful. And uh, my struggle um, with that then when I became an officer was I didn't want to be that particular cop. Uh, I knew part of that being because I was the first and only black officer at that department for 
uh, I don't know, maybe about 14 years of my career. If I did anything wrong, everybody was going to know who it was. You know, I, I didn't blend into anything. So everybody knew who I was on the street and off the street. So I, I paid particular attention to the way that I um, interacted with people. And, and then over the course of my career, as I got a little older and, and you know, was hoping to not have to go hands on with people, I spent a lot of time thinking about how I approach situations, how I talk to people. Was it really necessary to be in absolute control all of the time when really what people need is to be able to communicate with me? about things, you know, and I still get to make my decisions as a law enforcement officer on whether or not they've broken the law and I got to take them to jail. But that process is better if I treat people with respect initially. And that's what that, that phrase that you use, um, you know, to introduce me, the it's don't let your authority enter the room before you do. Uh, that's, I kind of developed that in law enforcement to try to drive down the number of actual physical contacts I had to have with people. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it, it worked. and I teach it now. Hey. That's incredible. I really think so, too, because um, I and and I love that we have you because it, this is offering a different side than, frankly, I've personally heard from anybody so far. And I feel like I've been relatively engaged. What I think might be helpful is if you can kind of just tell us about your pre-law enforcement experience that you did have and what ended up bringing you into the force and finally making that decision. Sure. Um, I mean, it's interestingly had never um, in my life believed that I would be a police officer. As a matter of fact, I'd, my uncle, my mother's brother, my uncle was a law enforcement officer in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, a uh, detective, narcotic, uh, and also um, now still uh, works as, as a nurse at a hospital. We have almost the exact same path, um, interestingly. And I, I always looked up to him, but never thought that I would follow that path. When I was growing up, I never saw police officers unless they were coming into the neighborhood to deal with people that were doing something wrong. I mean, my, a lot of summer nights were, you know, hearing yelling and screaming in the streets, some gunshots, there were gangs in our neighborhood. I didn't feel unsafe in my neighborhood, but I also didn't have a relationship with law enforcement. Uh, my first encounter really was I was coming, um, I believe I was 16 years old, first real encounter. I was coming from a youth dance club or, or what have you, and followed all the way to my driveway and uh, countered law enforcement. As I pulled in my driveway, they pulled it behind me, uh, and I had a little encounter with them right there in my driveway as my mom came out to see what the heck was going on, and I, they thought that I was involved in a, an altercation um, somewhere near downtown. Um, and then with some things that had happened with my family and, and stuff, I decided, well, maybe I'll give it a shot. And uh, the department that I, that I ended up working for was the only department that was hiring at the time. And I end up getting hired. So, you know, from that point on, I always tell people I loved my career in law enforcement. I learned a ton about myself uh, and about people. And it's helped me be successful today. I wanted to go back real quick because in our in our last episode, we did talk a lot about the bias, implicit bias, unconscious bias, however you'd like to call it. And I would like to hear your take on how that as a law enforcement officer, do you think that the experiences that you have any of the training or anyone within the force that you're working with has a direct impact on your biases that you carry to calls? Uh, absolutely. So I, I know that for me anyway, you know, I can speak for myself, my experiences prior to being a law enforcement officer, my experiences in my own home growing up, things that my parents taught me uh, or didn't teach me, the things that I learned um, either on the street or in school, um, all of those things played into how I felt about how I did my job, you know? And, and so the, the constant struggle in law enforcement is, can you be objective? 
about almost everything that you do. Uh, and I think that's really, really difficult. There is no doubt that I, I, I can't imagine there's an officer in this country that would be able to raise their hand and say, I've never judged anyone before talking to them. I've never decided ahead of time how this traffic stop was going to go before I even encountered that particular person. Um, I, you know, we all do it. It's difficult to keep that out of it. And so the struggle for me was being the first and only black officer in that town, encountering some people who, who didn't love that situation, had some interesting things to say to me. And so, you know, my, one of my biggest struggles was, I have a choice to make. Do I use my authority to affect their lives in a negative way because I'm upset about what they said to me um, because I took it personal or do I do my job? And my job would suggest I'm objective. I have, I evaluate the situation. I arrest if there's an arrest. I don't if I don't need to. Um, there are, there's plenty of subjectivity to law enforcement, but there are some clear cut things that, you know, we should or, or, or can or can't do. And so um, that was a constant battle for me. And I think there are a lot of officers who um, have that same thing. You know, when people grow up in small town Iowa and never have an experience with people of color and never understand anything other than what they watch on TV, then they have preconceived ideas about what it means to to walk into a predominantly black neighborhood or to walk into an, um, an apartment where there's six black people hanging out. You know, I mean, and I've seen the reaction and the change in people in real time when that kind of happens. And so there's there's a lot to it. I mean, there's there's a lot for people to push down inside if they're going to do the job in the, in the best way they can in the way that they're supposed to do it. And, you know, I've talked about this before with a lot of other people. This is uh, one of the struggles is how do you identify people who simply cannot kind of keep that stuff inside so that they can do their job effectively. And we see that with this latest incident in Minneapolis. Yes. This is a slight segue and then we will move back into it because I know Ashley had a question, but a slight segue from what you just shared, which I had never thought about, although I should have. So your experience as an officer, the first black officer in your area was that, so what we've been seeing is that people who are not necessarily doing anything, getting these harsh punishments and or murders and or assaults metered out to them, but kind of the opposite. So what you're saying is there's these people that you have legitimate authority over that you're executing your job properly and they just want to dismiss it, which I guess I haven't, I guess I didn't even think about um, a black officer, what they would deal with. What was that like? Um, I'm sorry. And so ask it again, you know, the. Yeah. So just basically, so because my mom dealt with that. So my mom was a registered nurse and she would be like the nurse in charge. But because she was black, they didn't want to recognize her authority. And so we've been talking about it one way, but I guess I haven't even thought about it from the flip side, which is, you know, everyone's like, you're supposed to comply. You're supposed to do this and or this wouldn't happen. But the other one where they don't even recognize your humanity because of whatever. So they don't even feel like you have authority. Right. So yeah, it's it's difficult. And I'll say there's a handful of times when I had to, to kind of process and work through someone screaming derogatory names at me while I'm trying to do my job and, and try to figure out how do I how do I get this done um, in a way that is within the framework of law enforcement like I'm supposed to, where it doesn't take me to a place personally where I feel like I have the authority to to add a little something to this arrest, but I'm not going to. Because what it does for me, of course, is it makes it about me. And so the the hard part then is deciding 
how to not let it be about me. And this is, again, one of the things that I kind of teach with the de-escalation, which is whatever that person came in with is their stuff. The minute that I, when they come in and they're upset and frustrated and yelling and screaming at me, the minute that I try to control that immediately with my authority, I start to make it about me. Um, and so if I, if I don't do that, if I allow them the opportunity to express themselves in the way they need to, understanding that at some point I may need to or and I'm able to step in and, and control that environment a little bit better, if I take a minute to understand who they are um, and let them kind of get that information out, we can probably end up having a conversation that does not require me using any authority whatsoever to deal with the situation. And so I, I teach that because I had to learn that control while I was on, in law enforcement, that if I get to a situation and somebody starts screaming at me and calling me um, all kinds of names and stuff like that, and my immediate reaction then is to grab onto them, throw them to the ground and put them in handcuffs, I'm never going to develop any kind of a report. And I don't get the opportunity to educate them on why what they're doing is wrong or what they're saying is wrong. And I would use that, whether they loved it or not, that ride down to, uh, it's about seven miles or so from, uh, from the city where I was at down to the jail. So I use that opportunity. They had to listen to me all the way down to the jail, talk about why you shouldn't call people colored nigger or any of that kind of stuff. Good for you. Yeah. I feel like, and this is, I'm just going to be straight with it. Cause I, I don't, I don't know if I'm right or wrong. First of all, I want to take a second and acknowledge the fact that that has to be incredibly hard to check yourself like that because I think it's super easy to look from the other side and say, you have to be better. You have to do this. But then when you're in that situation, I mean, to not take something personal when someone's saying it directly to you personally mm -hmm. is incredibly hard. So I'd like to take a, a second to acknowledge that. But then also, and again, I this is my own bias that I'm putting out on display here. So forgive my ignorance, but I feel like you might be a little bit of a unicorn or maybe it's because I haven't talked to enough officers, but that mindset is not the mindset. And I've not had any negative interactions with law enforcement as a general rule. So it's coming from a perspective of what I've seen friends go through. It's coming from a perspective of, you know, a lot of different things. Sure. So Heather, I, this was my question. This was exactly it? what I was going to ask. Yep. So, go for so it. Claude, this perspective that you're providing with us right now is an incredibly refreshing one. Mm -hmm. And one that I think very much needs to be publicized in all of the ways possible. Like if we could, if we could give you a megaphone and have you stand on the top of the cliff and speak to the world and let them know that this is a cop's perspective, I think that would do a lot of good for everyone which we're trying to do. That said, the media and everything that's flying around in the world right now tells us that you are in the minority, that this perspective is not a common one. Sure. In your experience, is the way that you think and behave and the way that you are processing your job, is that, are you in the minority? Or is that just a, a bias that we all have from what's been floating around? Like, are you, are you a unicorn or are you, or is this something that- I was going to say, are you Lisa Frank? <laughs> are you Lisa Frank? Or is this something that the rest of, that the, the rest of your guys in your squad would be like, yeah, amen, that's how we feel too. You know, I, I, I really, um, gosh- I really feel like, one, I would like to believe that the department that I came up in, for the most part, was that way. I know that there were there were some biases. I know that there um, was even potentially just a little bit of bigotry. Some of it um, I know because I experienced it inside of those walls of the police department, but always had an opportunity to educate people about that. So I would say my experience is, I don't think my experience is unique. And I don't think I'm a unicorn. I, I actually do believe that the the vast majority of officers who come into this profession 
come in with the right mindset of wanting to to do the right thing, that they, they go to school to, to, and take criminal justice and do all of these things because they want to do this job in a very specific way. I think what happens with potentially many officers is once you get into that paramilitary mindset, once you spend 80 plus percent of your time training on defense and weapons use and things like that, and then get out onto the street and realize that people are trying to take your head off sometimes, you build a little bit of a rough shell about this. And I think some of those feelings and ideas that you had when you said, I want to go out there and save the world, become really hard, dogged nights of dealing with people who are trying to hurt you or running from you or you know, in putting you in situations where you have to make decisions about being physical. And so as that grows and people, I think we start to see some of those incidents of, of you know, use of force where you get tired. Quite honestly, you get tired. Um, this is a, a very unique profession and it takes a very unique type of person to do this job well all of the time. And we all make mistakes. You know, the mistakes shouldn't be fatal. Sometimes they are, but should not be across the board fatal. So I think kind of to answer your question, I really don't think that I'm a unicorn. I really don't think that there's, I, I think my my mindset is probably a little bit more to the majority than it is the minority when it comes to, to this type of thing. I think the issue is the culture and structure of law enforcement doesn't necessarily always allow that person to shine, if that makes sense. Right. Um, so, that leads, so that leads me very much to this question that I have been dying to ask someone just like you. Sure. Which in this most recent incident, which of course is in no way isolated, it's just very inflammatory. What happened to George Floyd? Sure. If we were, we've been talking about the mugshots of those four officers and how two of them were very, very junior r- rookie guys on the force. Yes. And they stood by and let this happen. Can you speak to, uh, you obviously can't speak to their, to their experience, but can you speak to the idea of brotherhood and camaraderie and seniority on the force when you have some examples of the bigotry that you've spoken to, like you had that experience, but you were able to think outside of that. Those guys clearly didn't have that same experience. Okay. I think the or whole, even the capacity right. to act. Yeah. Right. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll try to answer that in, in maybe a couple of different ways. And so if I, okay. if I don't get to the exact answer to your question, just remind me, um, cause I, I, I may get off on a little bit of a tangent here, but no, totally. My first, Go for it. my first response is to, and I'll just give you an example of my own life here. Prior to law enforcement, I, like I said, stopped maybe three or four times. My very first ticket in Iowa that was written to me was by an officer who worked at the department that I ended up working at. And he wasn't very nice. The minute that I was sworn in, all of a sudden I was brother. Okay. I, I continued to kind of drive the way I, I would drive. Uh, I had to travel back and forth to Michigan all the time, um, where, I'm, where I'm from. From the point I started carrying the badge in my wallet uh, as a law enforcement officer, anytime that I got pulled over and they saw that badge, it totally changed the tune of people that were engaging me. And I was, I mean, I, you know, obviously in 17 and a half years, never got a ticket. I mean, it was just uh, one of those things where as soon as the badge came out, it was the brotherhood and it didn't matter what state I was in. So mm-hmm. Michigan, Illinois, any place, is, you know, I'll, I'll full disclosure here. Um, one time, probably pushing 100 miles an hour uh, on Interstate 80, trying to hustle back to work in Iowa, got stopped by Illinois, who had a um, airplane going and was doing their little speed trap stuff. 
And at that point thinking, well, yeah, I'm going to lose my car. Uh, they're definitely going to take me somewhere. And I got, I, the guy asked me about my information. I had my, my badge was there because, of course, this is what we do as law enforcement officers. We put our ID next to our badge. So you see it. Um, and we had a nice conversation about law enforcement. He said, hey, hey, brother, be safe. Uh, have a good day. 100 miles an hour. So it's there's a brotherhood. There's no doubt. And we take care of each other. And I've done it myself. Uh, the last thing I want to do uh, or ever wanted to do was to hurt another officer in any way whatsoever because of the job that we did. And there's a respect that is inherent in just wearing the badge the minute you put it on your chest. Now, what is difficult is um, when we talk about the situation with George Floyd, um, when we're talking about officers who are learning the job, that bond in those police departments is so strong that I'm sure that even if that one of those officers said, hey, man, I don't know if that's right to that officer, I don't know that he would have ever had the gumption to get up and do something about it. And that is uh, that is one of the sad cultural things about law enforcement is that when you are sitting there watching someone doing something wrong, it is extremely difficult to to stand up against that. And the reason is, and I, I made this, I kind of made this analogy with a, another group that I was talking to. Some people feel very strongly about their family. And over and over again, who I've talked to as a law enforcement officer and not, when I say, uh, you know, when their kids do something wrong or dealing drugs or drunk and they get, uh, you know, arrested and taken to jail, they will bond them out and get them out and do everything they can to protect them, to keep them from going to jail. Those types of family bonds are strong. Uh, and I asked somebody one time, if you're, you're with your brother, your actual blood brother or sister, and they are out and they do something that is wrong or, or commit a crime or steal something, are you going to call the police on your sister and brother right there and have them taken to jail? I don't know if there's a lot of people that would do it. And this is the same feeling when you are a law enforcement officer and you are relying upon people to stand up for you and fight somebody with you or, you know, do any, everything that they can to protect you because that's what we do. Um, there's a level of trust that is unlike anything people probably understand in other professions. Um, and to break that trust by standing up against somebody in the moment uh, would be really, really hard. And so it's all wrong. And I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea. There is no justification whatsoever for, for what happened to George Floyd. There's no way to spin this uh, for it to be okay for any of those officers. But this is the things you're seeing are the two inherent problems in law enforcement right now. One, uh, the culture of law enforcement makes it really difficult to stand up for what might be the right thing when you're talking officer to officer. Two, we don't do a good enough job of getting rid of those officers who have a history of violence and excessive force and all of those types of things. We discipline instead of getting rid of them. And that, that's an issue. There's, there's no reason that, that that officer should have been in uniform that day. And that's, that's our biggest problem right there. So, and ladies, I have one more follow-up question, and then I promise I'll shut up for a very long time. This is one of the challenging things that I think a lot of the world is talking about right now is these, the word systemic gets thrown around a ton, but pervasive, complicated, cultural issues that need to be changed. Right. The two things that you just outlined about the way that the, the, way that the law enforcement culture is as a whole those are problems mm -hmm. that need to be addressed. From your perspective, which I've, which I've said and I will repeat is a refreshing one, what do you think can be done to fix this? I think it has to come from leadership at the highest levels. And so 
the, the thing that people are going to hate that I say about this is this starts with the president of our United States to declare what law enforcement is supposed to look like. And if that person, if it starts with that person and they decide that we're going to put together a group of people who are have the right mindset and can filter this down to our chiefs of police and our, our command staff and, and so on, our training modules, uh, our law enforcement academy, and, and make it rules, laws, or whatever we have to do. But it has to start from the top. And so, I, I mean, I, I go probably maybe a little bit too far on saying the president's responsible, but I'll tell you right now, I don't feel like the president is speaking out in a way that would help us feel comfortable that um, he's going to support the right kinds of changes. But our, our the chiefs of police, you know, have to have the right mindset. And that mindset has to be community-based. And, and for a lot of years, and I was in law enforcement when the whole community-based mindset of, of policing came out. Well, basically what that meant was we're going to flood communities with law enforcement officers, but that is not the same as providing the directive on how to do it. And so what I say sometimes is we're expecting leadership without teaching people how to lead. Um, and that's not, that doesn't work. So we can say, hey, go get, out, go get out in the community and be a presence and be visible in the community. And I can drive around a community all day long. And that doesn't do one thing for me to connect with our the people that live there. I'm not learning a thing about the community that I'm serving um, by driving around in the car. We got to get out of the car and knock on doors in times when we're not there to affect anyone's life in a negative way and say, hey, would you mind sitting down and talking to me? I'd love to know what's going on in this neighborhood. Talk to me about your life. Tell me what the challenges are. Help me help introduce me to people around here that maybe struggle. What can I do proactively as an officer to connect with my community that I'm going to be involved in every day? Because I think what that does then is provides mutual respect between people. Um, when I'm talking to my security officers here and training them and other people around the hospital, I tell people it's really, really difficult for people to want to hit you when they feel that they respect you. They might not like what you say or what your job is, but when they respect you, it's hard for them to be physical and it starts there. Uh, de-escalation is, is, you know, the point of that is to, to not go hands-on. So the way I introduce myself, the way that I first initiate contact in that situation is going to dictate everything else that happens. Um, and sometimes we can't control it, but what we can do is understand the right ways to go about enforcing things. And again, that means we can't always spend 80, 90% of our time in shoot, no shoot scenarios in how, how, you know, we, we do weapon retention, which is important, obviously, but what do we do if the bad thing happens, right? We're always preparing for the worst case scenario. And I think we don't do a good enough job preparing for the best case scenario, which is what happens if I have a traffic stop and I'm really nice to that person. We have, we have a good connection and I, I let them go. And uh, they then talk to their fellow community members about um, what a great job Officer Howard did on that traffic stop. That builds good policing. But we have to be proactive. It's it's on the law enforcement officers to do this, I think, at this point. We we have put ourselves in a position. I keep saying we. It's hard for me not to um, sometimes um, because I did the job. But it's it's on us, I think, to start this proactive approach to getting out there and, and bridging these gaps again because it gets wider and wider every year. And the more that the, the media takes hold of it and shows, you know, what, what is real, uh, I think, and, and what's really going on out there to combat that, uh, we can't be defensive anymore. We, we have to be offensive when it comes to saying we are going to start from the top as the chief of police and every chief of police should step out in front of their communities and say, I get it. You're right. And it starts with me. So this is what we're going to do. 
and have a plan. And every single officer should be empowered then to enact that plan uh, and, and do it the right way. But we have to spend more time out of that car and uh, in front of people and doing things that are more community-based and community-minded. You just made so many beautiful points. And my favorite one out of all of them was if you only train for the worst case scenario, you'll go into every situation expecting the worst case scenario. And I think that can be really applied to kind of the the culture globally right now. Everyone, we feel like we're in a powder keg because we're in a powder keg. We are. So I'm I'm so very excited to have this conversation with you. It's tough, Ashley, because we one of the things that you and I don't, I say this in a in a general sense, but uh, and, and maybe it's not the case everywhere. But it's rare that I've come across in my career a law enforcement officer that didn't express this somehow, some way. I mean, we feel like the job that I had, and I was told this, you know, not only in the academy, but but in the police department, my job is to make sure I go home every night. My job is to make sure my brother next to me wearing the shield goes home every night. And so that is the mindset that we start with, which is um, a, a, a bit defensive, quite honestly. It's, uh, you know, whatever it takes for me to make sure I win that fight. And that, you know, there's there's reason for that. You know, again, the job is hard. There are people out there that want to do harm uh, to law enforcement. There are people out there that just don't care. Um, and so we have to absolutely be prepared to deal with that segment of the population. I think that we can do a better job with the other, you know, 95% of people out there that need our help in different ways. And sometimes needing our help just means I need you to not beat me up for being drunk and not knowing what I'm saying or doing. Can you handle that in a different way? And sometimes we don't, yeah. you know, and, and we have to understand, I mean, we get into the, this profession knowing that. It's illegal to do certain things when you're drunk. It's illegal to be certain places, illegal to steal. So we know people are going to do wrong things. This is what the job is. So we can either say, I hate all criminals. I hated drugs. When I was a kid, you know, I was around drugs with my uncle and and, um, saw what it did to him. Drugs, gangs really hurt my family um, over the years. Um, I, I had a special negative feeling about drug dealers. I can tell you when I first got into narcotics work and I spent probably 12 of my 17 years in narcotics work um, as a detective, federal and and local uh, narcotics, I started by chasing every criminal I could find, selling drugs, trying to make cases and put people in prison. My first grouping of interviews and interrogations were... You could tell, I think, that I hate that uh, that I hated the people that I was dealing with. By the end of that that tenure in uh, in the federal task forces that I worked in, I understood that the best way for me to do my job, the most effective way, was to build a rapport with people and understand it, and then start to learn why they're doing it in the first place. Which turned me into a different person when I would stop people that were using or dealing or whatever, and I knew that I had a job to do. But I also took time to start talking to people and saying, hey, what's what's happened in your life that you're down this path right now? Is there something you need that can, I can help you with in order to get you to not do this? You know, that's the mindset that I ended up with. So how can I, can I ask you, how were you able to take yourself and do that work on yourself? Did somebody mentor you or was that self-started? I, it was self-started. And I think the, the reason is because. I didn't, I didn't come into law enforcement. I didn't come into law enforcement not having experiences that were negative. So I, I came into law enforcement wanting to do good things because I had experienced bad things, if that makes sense to you. Some people, I think, um, come into law enforcement because they want to wear the shield. They like the idea of being a cop. I, liked, I, wanted, I always wanted to help 
people. I wanted to be a pediatrician. You know, I like like kids. I always wanted to help people. Probably why I changed from you know um, medical pathway to a sociology pathway because I found out that I really enjoyed serving and helping people. So that plus my experiences and, and knowing how it felt to be on the other end of the law enforcement situation, I didn't want people to think about me that way. I didn't I didn't want people to think I don't like Officer Howard. He sucks. He's an asshole. I don't I didn't I'm sorry, can I cuss? Can I say that? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Holy smokes. All right. Well, you know, seriously, I, I think for me it was and, and I'll tell you, I, I think the changing incident, the changing issue was one of the first times when I was described by my color rather than what I did for a living or my name. And in that moment, when I had to, when I felt that anger inside and that boiling inside where I thought I'm a police officer and they're under arrest and I get to do this, uh, I had to hold back. That was the moment that changed me because I knew that if I unloaded on that, that citizen for what they said, that I would forever be labeled as a bad cop. And it would poorly reflect on my career for the rest of my career. There's no getting around that. Um, one, because I'm black and I'm the only one. There, there's no way they're going to mistake me for, me for anybody else. And I will carry that the rest of my career. And I didn't want to do that. And so I took it. And um, again, in that moment, I decided uh, I am going to use every opportunity I can to educate people on why they shouldn't do or say certain things and try to help people not get hurt uh, because I didn't want to get hurt. So did you ever have an experience after that where you re-encountered a citizen and good or bad, they kind of addressed that their role in the encounter when it was in such a negative way? Oh, sure. Way? All the time. And so I, I think what's reward, what can be rewarding about law enforcement, if, if you love it and felt the way I did about it after, after I started my career, is that when people come back to you and feel like you've affected their life in a positive way, that's what we're supposed to be doing. And, uh, you know, we, we do our job, but it doesn't have to be a negative interaction all the time, even when it seems on its face a negative interaction. So the people that I put in jail for a while or that I had to go in and throw them on the ground and arrest them and, and then I talk to them, um, I've had some people come back to me and say, hey, I really appreciate the way you treated me. I appreciate, you know, I know that I screwed up and I know I did this and I'm sorry, I shouldn't have called you that, or I shouldn't have took a swing at you, or I shouldn't have, you know, done this or done that. But, you know, mm -hmm. thanks for being decent um, with me about it. And, and that's good enough for me. You know, I mean, I, I, I didn't care about the rest of that stuff as much as I cared about the fact that I was um, trying to build some type of relationship and, and honestly, some type of reputation in the community. So because I was always, again, battling the, if I do something wrong, everybody's going to know about it. If one of the other white officers does something wrong, they might not be able to figure out who that was. You know, and as silly as that sounds, uh, it's what drove me to honestly change my entire life. Because I live in a small town that is, I can count the number of black people in the town on my hand because they all live in my house. It's a, it's just one of those things where I, I know if I don't, if I don't act in as professional a way as I can, someone's going to call me out and I will immediately be tagged and I, and I can't escape it, you know. And again, we all make mistakes. I made plenty in my career, but I did the very best I could, I, I think, to um, to deal with the public in a way that was as positive as possible, even when they weren't being positive with me, because it's a service profession. Uh, I got into this to help other people. And I think when I, I wrote a, I have wrote a couple of I don't know, short essays, so to speak, on on how I feel about this stuff. And I, you know, and I say in that that it's difficult for 
me to not talk to people about how important it is to understand that law enforcement is, you know, serve and protect is not the same. And, and I don't, I, we have to redefine that because in some aspects of uh, in police departments, we're not doing either of those things. Um, we're not serving or protecting people. We are providing a disservice, unfortunately, to the communities by the way that we're policing. So I really appreciate your perspective. I think we all do. And I appreciate that you come from a different place in that your accountability was so important because of the way you look and also that coupled with the fact that where you live. Like you said, if you did one thing, there was no getting away from it. Unfortunately, perhaps it's a black officer in a predominantly black force or a white officer in in a predominantly white force. As you mentioned, they can get away with it a lot more easily. So one thing I just want to kind of pivot us to the solution-based, right? Because What we're trying to do is provide ideas and an avenue on ways that these things can move forward or be resolved in a better way. And I know that's something that you have a lot of opinions on. So would you share some thoughts on what you think can change? I mean, outside of the president. Yeah, I know. I, I said that, and there's, I, you know, there's, I, I don't. It's okay. No, nope, you're allowed. You are allowed. Would you like to know how Claude answered that last question, as well as hear more of his thoughts and insights regarding this topic? Join us on part two of the Claude Howard interview next Tuesday. As a reminder, the opinions expressed on today's episode are our own. We do encourage you to do your own research and come to your own fact-based conclusions. The call to action this week is to go to our Facebook page. You can find us at Diversity on Fire on Facebook, and check out the two writings that we have posted that Claude put together. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you were inspired to think more deeply. Next week, we'll have part two of the Claude Howard interview. If you have a topic that you would like us to discuss, or if you'd like to be a guest on our show, please reach out to info at Diversity on Fire or leave us a voice note. The link for that can be found in the show notes. Don't forget to hit subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Diversity on Fire. And finally, please share the show with everyone you know so more people can join us in these important conversations. I'm sorry, can I cuss? Can I say that?